Welcome. Um, my name is Claire Callender, and I'm Professor of Higher Education Policy here at the Institute of Education. And I'm also Deputy Director of the Centre for Global Higher Education, funded by the SRC. And the centre is hosting tonight's event, along with the OECD's Centre for Education, Research and Innovation. And um, CG, as we like to call it, um, is currently undertaking 16 different sorts of projects all around different aspects of higher education, involving some over 45 researchers drawn from um, six UK-based universities and eight universities based outside the UK. So CG is a truly global and international partnership. And one of the things that we do look at are issues around teaching and learning, which is really the focus of today's event. Now, the format for today is that Carl Wyman will present his lecture, and that will be followed by responses from two individuals. Firstly, and I'd like to welcome Osama Raham, who is the um, Department for Education's Director of Analysis and the Chief Scientific Advisor. Originally, he was an academic, um, but has had played many roles since then. And most recently, he was Director of Analytical Services and Chief Scientific Advisor at the DfE, and prior to that, the Chief Economist. Also, um, from home territory, um, I'd like to welcome Professor John Mitchell, who's Vice Dean of Education in the Faculty of Engineering Sciences at UCL. And he also is the lead on the development of teaching and learning spaces in the new UCL um, East campus based at Stratford. Professor Mitchell's research is based around access technologies, both wired and wireless. And in addition, he is a key, has a keen interest in improving engineering education with a particular focus on introducing student-centered techniques. So Professor Mitchell's interests neatly leads in to the key speaker today. And it's with enormous pleasure um, that I'd like to introduce Carl, um, Professor Carl Wyman. Professor Wyman is, um, holds a joint appointment as Professor of Physics and of the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. He won the Nobel Prize in 2001 and has done extensive experimental research in atomic and optical physics. His current research and work is focusing on undergraduate physics and science education and has pioneered the use of experimental techniques to evaluate the effectiveness of various teaching strategies for physics and other sciences. And he's recently authored a book called Improving How Universities Teach Science, which, of course, is the topic of today's lecture. Professor Wallin, the floor is yours. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to say I'm not used to having an introduction that makes it so clear that if it gets really boring, you should pull the fire alarm and be released. But 
hopefully it won't be that bad. Um, so the, um, I want to start out by making it clear that my goal isn't to produce a whole bunch more scientists and engineers. That's on a, you know, some more is okay. But I'm really focused on the broader, uh, let's call it technical literacy uh, for science education that is useful for, I would argue, for really every uh, university student, really regardless of their uh, future occupations, both, you know, both to make them more wiser citizens in terms of some of the you know, important de uh, decisions have to be made in a democracy, and then in the modern you know, economy, so much of the workforce calls upon more technical knowledge and skills. Now, uh, I also emphasize my focus, as I said, is really on university level education. So if you want to know how to you know, improve your, your seventh, seven year old's education, you're in the wrong talk. But uh, so, anyway, so what I'm going to talk about is first uh, covering basic educational goals and sort of the research-based principles of learning that have come out of, of research, and then look at applying these principles in a variety of university courses, looking at the kinds of data we get, and then um, and measuring results, and actually talking, for those of you who are teachers, a little bit about some of these things, some ideas that come out of this you may be not familiar with that you can use tomorrow. Um, before I go into those, though, I want to give you a little my own background of how I got involved in this work and sort of the own, my own perspective that I bring to it. And it really came about, you know, my interest in education, not from teaching uh, or not in the formal course sense, but from working with my uh, PhD students working in my research, uh, physics research lab. And I got puzzled about this phenomenon I saw getting repeated over and over, that these student, new students, would, graduate students, would come into my lab. They'd had you know, many years of great success and outstanding exam scores and so on in physics and mathematics. But when put into doing research, they were really pretty clueless about how to actually do physics. And Yet, it wasn't some mental deficiency of them because they almost all, after a couple of years working in the research lab, turned into expert physicists. And so after I saw this happen enough times, I decided, you know, this wasn't a strange idiosyncrasy of particular students. There was some fundamental issue about learning that was going on here. And this was actually about 30 years ago. And so I decided to tackle this like a science problem. And so I went and did, dug, started digging into the research on how people learn, particularly how they learn physics. At that point, there was some early research on that subject. And I found out that first, you know, the, it explained the puzzle. This actually made sense. It also made me realize that there were much better, more effective ways in principle to teach than what we were using in our courses. Um, and then it also got me started on actually doing uh, education research of realizing you could do experiments, you could collect data and have fundamental principles to explain them. Uh, and 
you know, and that was, so for many years, I actually had two parallel research groups, and I now have about equal numbers of publications in atomic physics and, and science education. And, but my work is always focused from this extent of what, what's expertise? How, what does thinking like a physicist or, a, you know, a scientist mean and how it's learned? Um, and so, you know, when I, when I think back to the goal of education and what I felt my students, these graduate students were lacking, it was being able to make decisions when faced in this about, about how to do physics. And so I'm gonna now step, you know, way back and, and ask to frame the question of what's the goal of education? And what I would argue is it's fundamentally about having people learn to make better decisions uh, in some relevant aspects of their life. And at the level of university science education, at the program and course level, it's really about having them learn to use the, the reasoning and knowledge of the, of the discipline where relevant to make, to make better decisions. Decisions um, that you know, are like experts in the subject. That's what I call, that's sort of how you define uh, expertise. And so the rest of my talk is really about research on how to, you know, on how to do that, how to teach that more effectively. Uh, now, this is actually, is part of uh, something called discipline-based education research, which some of you may have heard of, but it's really a, fairly new and not widely uh, recognized subject. And it's really uh, comes from science and engineering faculty in you know, university departments studying specifically the teaching and learning of those uh, science and engineering disciplines. Um, and it's, you know, it's focused purely at the university level and it's primarily, just for historical accent, been primarily done in uh, North America, although now it's spreading throughout the world. Um, and just uh, a note in passing, since I am speaking in a faculty of education, um, the, the research that comes out of this kind, or this kind of research is actually um, much simpler and cleaner in its results than the, uh, the school or, or KTEL uh, education research, uh, and it's just because at the university level, particularly in these disciplines, it's just a much simpler, you know, experimental system. There are many less uh, confounding variables, and so it's easier to get cleaner results, just like uh, any other area of science. But, uh, you know, I, I would say it's almost certain the principles I'm gonna talk about here, they'll almost certainly apply at the this, this school level as well, although they may not be as complete as they are at the university level. There could be, uh, just as there are other confounding factors in the research, there could be other fact factors important in the teaching and learning of it. Um, okay, so I'm gonna start with what the, the biggest picture of this whole body of research that I'll talk about more, but it, it really introduces a new paradigm on learning. You can use the reserve seats there, nobody else will take them. <laughs> anyway, um, the at learning at the university level, and I'll start, the, the old and frankly 
completely prevailing uh, still model of university learning is that these brains, student brains, come into our classrooms and we immerse them in knowledge, you know, the curriculum, and it soaks in to different amounts depending on what the brain was like, okay? Now, if this is your model of learning, uh, which, as I say, it really is, then the primary focus and discussion of education at the university level um, is first, you know, deciding on the contents of this knowledge soup, the curriculum of topics you're going to cover. That lots and lots of discussions always in every department and university about that. And then the second is admitting the best brains, selecting the brains that the knowledge soaks into best, okay? Um, and then, of course, when things don't work very well, blaming the schools <laughs> for any failures, okay? Now, um, with this model, though, of, of really learning, uh, it also has really the idea of teaching as kind of a folk art that's kind of an individual choices and, you know, everybody is an equivalent expert to a large extent. Um, okay, so what's the research-based paradigm or view of learning? It's quite different. The, uh, and this is the you know, this is the correct version, uh, this is what research really tells us is happening, is that these brains come into the classroom not actually very different, and that other than soaking knowledge into them, they really are transformed in the educational process. And by that, I mean they, there's really major changes going on, some new neurons, but drastic changes in how the neurons are hooked together. And it's really in this rewired brain that the, that the knowledge and the learning and the new capabilities of learning take place. And this, this rewiring is in, is in response to basically intense thinking uh, results in this. And you can actually even see this now with modern brain imaging. These are uh, two people. Two people's brains, they're in an MRI machine, and they're interpreting a medical x-ray. And on the right here is a medical student who's just learning to do this. And on the left is an experienced, highly expert radiologist. And I think you can, you know, it's not real clear maybe from where you are, but you can still see that the, their brains are being activated in very different ways in, in response to this task. The experts has been changed, and we have some studies where actually a single brain can be measured at, pure, uh, at different stages of learning, showing that it's actually changing how it's functioning there. Now, there's other things that go into, that come out of this, which is that you, the idea that there's really teaching as expertise, there's really particular ways of teaching that create the right kind of mental exercise that lead to these changes in the brain, and that the, the teaching methods really dominate the results relative to the, relative to the, the uh, content, because it's the methods that really determine how, how intensely engaged the brain is. Okay, so if you don't take away anything but that, you have a pretty good view of everything more I'm going to say at the high level. So now the rest is sort of details. Now this view uh, of, of learning has really come about because of 
and then the new insights, more or less in the past couple of decades, from three different uh, fields, the brain research, more the cognitive psychology, this the learning science about how the brain thinks and learns, and then these kind of university classroom studies that I talked about being carried out by science uh, faculty. Um, okay, so now I'm gonna jump into the, the basic uh, applying these principles and looking at the kind of research studies people have done, the kind of data or my choice of particularly nice data illustrating what goes into those conclusions. And so I first want to say that, okay, so there's, you know, I've been saying there's lots of this kind of classroom, science and engineering classroom uh, research. And once you strip away the jargon, of which there's lots, of course, um, that it really almost, the, the research particularly, the compelling, comes down to some basic features. It's first, they, the research develops some test that really probes how well, you know, how experts are thinking about the subject. They make decisions, you know, for the relevant topic and relevant level. And then they take that test um, and they use it for comparing how well students are learning to do this uh, for two different conditions. Uh, usually, most cases, the control condition is the is the standard and still widely you know, prevailing lecture uh, approach of instructors standing up, telling the students things that they should know, how, what they should do. Oops, and, the, and then the, the experimental condition is various ways they're having the students practice actually making decisions and getting feedback on those decisions. Now, I think when you boil it down to that level, most people ought to not be too shocked that there's a big difference there between practicing making decisions versus somebody talking at you in how well you are. But I'll just show you the data uh, to convince you a little more. So this is a study uh, I had a little bit of involvement in, which is looking at just learning that takes place in the classroom setting, okay? And this is in a large lecture theater class. Uh, it was a, a very large physics, uh, sec, physics course, enrollment physics course, and so you could have two sections carefully measured as being very identical. Uh, and then the control, one of those sections, was then taught this particular material using by a very experienced faculty member who used traditional lectures with high and had high student evaluations of it. And then the experimental section was then somebody who's a physics PhD, but had then been trained in these methods and techniques of uh, research-based teaching in my program, actually. And so these two instructors agreed to cover the same amount, the same material, or try and cover the same material in just the same amount of, of class time. And then they had a jointly developed test that they gave to the students right after the second, uh, you know, right after the completion of these, of, the, of these units. And they carefully timed this so that students weren't doing homework or studying for exams outside. So it was really, in, by intention, just measuring the learning that takes place from the students coming to class, okay? So here's the results. Um, and the histogram of the, the test scores here versus the number of students. And you can see the distribution is profoundly different 
Uh, it's actually even more extreme when you realize on this particular test, the amount of learning is kind of a measure of how far above three uh, a student is. And so, you know, this makes it clear that the learning from lecture in this case, and I could show you other cases I've got data on, is just really tiny. Uh, but it also, and I want to stress more, shows how this is a way of teaching that's effective for the entire population. You can see the whole distribution has moved up here. So it's not just better for the, the stronger students or the weaker students. It's weak, it's, you know, I like to say it's better for all the students who have a human brain, because this is really the way the human brain learns, and that's pretty much all your students, I think. Um, okay, now you might argue appropriately, well, that was just what happens in class, but most of the learning takes place outside of class. Students are, are thinking about the material, studying exams, etc. And you're, you're right, I mean, that was one, just a research study. Most of the research in this field looks at the learning that takes place over an entire completion of an entire course. And so this is an example of that. Uh, this again is, this is looking at first year physics and what they're doing in, in this study is they're looking at uh, how well students can use the, the concepts of force and motion, which are sort of the key concepts of this, of this course, to make predictions like a physicist would as to what would happen in simple real world situations like cars running into trucks, et cetera. And so we researchers in physics have developed some, some good tests that are used widely for probing this. And so they collected data on this for a number of years across these many different instructors and many different sections. And they were scattered here around 0.3, which is, uh, pretty typical for a well-taught lecture course on this material that you, you see. Um, okay, and then they switch to this research-based teaching and basically all the instructors and all the sections jumped up dramatically and are now closely scattered at about a factor of two higher than the previous average was. And so the the point that I particularly want to emphasize here is it's, it's come out of these kinds of studies is that you have the same instructors and they simply changing their methods and that, that dramatically changes the learning and really is determining the learning outcomes. Uh, now, so what's happening in these experimental classes that are getting so, so much better results? Well, basically, the, the format and, you know, the details, of course, vary on the settings and so on, but the, the format's pretty general for most of these kind of studies, which is that the students do some kind of uh, a little bit of preparation before coming to class, and then in class, they're sitting there working to solve problems, to answer questions, usually collaboratively, while the instructor is going around monitoring what they're doing, and then periodically, you know, every 10 minutes or so, the appropriate spot is then breaking the, you know, stopping them working to give feedback and answer questions, uh, and then uh, and then they continue on down through working through the materials, uh, solving, answering questions for their problems. So. Uh, let me just show you what this looks like in the large lecture setting. 
uh, where it's, you know, it's a little trickier to figure out how to do this effectively. So, uh, but this is like in the first study I showed, this is an example of what they were doing there. So they have this reading assignment they're supposed to do before class. Um, and just to emphasize that what, what's really happening here isn't them learning the physics, but it's, it's essentially moving the basic you know, information and terminology, not wasting class time with things that they can get perfectly well reading on their own ahead of time. And then class starts not with a lecture, but starts with a question. For example, this is a one that was used. Uh, you have this where teaching about basic electricity here. You have a circuit with light bulbs and a battery, and the students are asked what's going to happen if that switch is closed uh, to the brightness of bulb two. And then every student, because you want, you know, use technology here, every student has a clicker, which I don't know how familiar people are with. It's basically it looks something like this with five buttons on it, and every student has one. And they push the button, and basically, the, my computer as instructor records who they were and what answer they chose. Okay, and then, then they would discuss. So in this class, you know, these two would, those three would be have to talk, then talk to each other about what the answer was and and the reasons behind it, and and revote. And while they're doing that, the instructor isn't standing up here waiting. They're actually going up and down the aisles, listening in on those conversations to get little snapshots of what's going on in those student brains, what aspects of, of are their thinking is like a physicist like you, they want, or what, and what aspects are, are incorrect. And then, okay, so then after they've re-voted, takes discussion, a couple minutes, then you demonstrate the results. Um, and uh, show what happens. But then there's important uh, follow-up summary in which the instructor then gives feedback to the students on the models they're using and what was right and what was incorrect in their thinking. And I emphasize in particular that this is in bold uh, because a lot of instructors who aren't so uh, you know, well-educated in, in learning uh, you know, the students will answer, and if some of them will write, and, and a bunch of them are wrong, will then think the appropriate thing is to then, they'll go over, here's carefully what the correct answer is, and they'll move on. In fact, that doesn't achieve much learning. Um, what really achieves learning is when a person does something incorrect, and then has come to understand why it's incorrect and how to change it. And that's really where learning is produced. And so it's really critical to spend actually more time on the incorrect answers and why people are thinking about that than it is the correct ones. Okay, so that's the basic idea of what would happen. More mathematical things also in a large class or especially in the smaller classes. People are having worksheets where they, each student is writing things down calculating and so on, but they're talking to each other, the same basic process is happening. Um, and so in the, um, in the small class that I showed you, there were 40 students there. Uh, in, in those settings, usually people are having the students sit around tables and so on, work together. Uh, but the same cognitive operations are really, and feedback operations are happening. Now, 
Okay, so how is this helping students learn? Well, if you think about it, they're, they're practicing thinking like physicists. They're doing, because what they're having to do is look at that question, they're having to choose and apply a conceptual model, test it against what happens, test it through their arguments, discussions with their fellow students. So that's very much, you know, physicist thinking, and they're, whoops, and they're getting multiple immediate forms of feedback from their fellow students, from comparing their predictions with what happens, and then from the informed instructor who's targeting. And so, uh, so those are really the key aspects of why these things are, are much more uh, effective for learning. Uh, just to show you, it's not all physics, and it's not just in measured concept tests. Uh, this is applying the same ideas to introductory uh, core computer science courses at San Diego, where the same faculty then switched over to uh, essentially exactly like I described with the electricity example. These are big classes using clickers and questions. Uh, and they looked at the drop and failure rates here. And basically, you can see across the board, the adopting these methods led to uh, decreased failure rates. And so, again, you have the same people. They've adopted better teaching methods. And now they have about a third the failure rate they did before. That means a lot of students are now successfully able to pursue careers in computer science who weren't when the faculty were just less effective teachers. Um, the, lots of research has been done on introductory courses, and people think, well, advanced courses are different. They're not. Uh, this is something my own group has been leading uh, leaders on, of applying these same ideas in advanced, uh, in advanced classes. Those are, are more like the small ones. You know, they're smaller classes. They're much more mathematical, so students are working away, calculating uh, these things in worksheets while the instructors are you know, going around monitoring what they're doing, but again, periodically stopping and giving tar very targeted feedback to the students. Um, does it work? Yeah, so here's a one standard deviation improvement for this is a fourth year course, just to show you data. Um, uh, at, at Stanford, we have, um, with some nudging from me, uh, now the eight of, so a large fraction of the courses in the second to fourth year that physics majors take have actually been transformed uh, to this kind of research-based teaching. Um, and it's very striking basically how there's been very strong both student and faculty preference for, for this kind of uh, instruction. Um, okay, so those are a bunch of examples. The, the big overview is, if you dig into the full literature across all these different STEM fields, I've, you can come up with about a thousand uh, experiments doing these kind of comparisons of traditional lecture with these various research-based instruction. Uh, and they show that the results are really dominated by the teaching methods that are used, uh, and that they consistently show greater learning uh, lower failure and dropout rates, uh, and they're somewhat larger benefit for at-risk students, although the data is not quite as, as strong there. Um, but 
I want to emphasize now that there's actually a lot of factors that go into getting really good results, uh, you know, and big differences here. And so uh, this is sort of now the, the background. Now this is kind of the educational part of here's all the things if you want to be a really effective teacher, you've got to pay attention to, okay? Uh, and these are all things that research shows if you do these things, you get better results than if you don't. So at the center here is the, is the, the students have to learn or they have to practice making decisions um, and they have to have feedback that's timely and specific in terms of helping improve their learning. But then in terms of what kind of exercises and, and decisions they're making, uh, a whole bunch of, there's a bunch of things that are important in those designs. And those are the things all across the top here. There's the, the appropriate level connection with the student's prior knowledge. There's making motivation. These are, if you want them to learn, they have to be intensely engaged because otherwise their brain's not getting exercised enough. So motivation's critical. There's some basic brain constraints I'll say a little more about. And then finally, there's gotta be the disciplinary expertise. They've gotta, it's not enough to just tell them to go work on problems and talk to other students. They gotta be solving, practicing the important decision-making, important thinking for the discipline relative to the, the topics being covered. And then there's a, an, an, down at the bottom, there's research on on important aspects of implementation, the kinds of questions and deliverables you have to have, and how to enhance the collaborative or social learning between uh, students working together. And, but within this slide, all the things covered in those boxes, what I argue is that we, it allows one to do something that really was, is only quite recently possible, which is that it really allows you to define teaching expertise at the university level. Um, and in the same way we can now define, you know, expertise in medicine and, and to some, you know, various other professions, now we can say, look, you know, if you're, if you're an instructor and you use all of these practices, you know about them, you will be a bit more effective teacher, you'll have better student outcomes than if you don't. Okay, um, so I'm gonna say a little bit about uh, some of the, a couple of these just uh, that you might not be so familiar with. I think these people have a pretty intuitive idea of what's involved in that. Uh, the brain constraints are one that uh, is useful to know about. There's really two aspects I wanna talk about. First is, um, it has to do with, with working memory and, and in, in terms of the way cognitive psychologists think about the, the brain remembering things, uh, they talk about long-term memory. That's what most of us think about as basic memory. It's got this enormous capacity and it works for long time scales. But on, sh on new learning new things and you know, uh, on short time scales, there's this buffer essentially that before the long-term memory. And this is the, the so-called short-term working memory. In contrast to the long-term memory, it has a tiny capacity, something in the order of five to seven new things, which means 
It's new is not in, in long-term memory. Um, and every additional thing that this buffer working memory has to deal with reduces what it can pay attention to, reduces its processing, and reduces the subsequent learning. And so uh, any additional thing that comes along has a, a price, is what this means. And so uh, you can look at a bunch of things that happen in the classroom. And uh, first, the split attention, which uh, is just a disaster for learning because it dramatically drops the available working memory, you know, available for the, the content you want to be learning. And so even if you don't believe anything else about this talk, if you are sitting there giving lectures and a whole bunch of the students are busy checking their phones or the computers, which in the modern world is a real big problem, get somebody to look from the back and check, uh, you know, it's just a total waste of time for everybody concerned. Um, okay, but there's some other things that aren't so obvious and are more under the instructor's control. You know, every bit of additional jargon is loading down that working memory. So you need to think really hard whether that term is all that important uh, to use, because it will have a cost. But then the, the thing that gets teachers and students particularly upset when I, when I point this out, is all those interesting little digressions and those jokes, um, they actually hurt learning. And you know the students will say, but that can't be. That's the only time I pay attention. And the, the instructors will say, that can't be. That's the only time the students pay attention to me. But that's exactly the point. Because of this limited capacity for attention, Anything the students are paying attention to means they're less attention devoted to actually learning the material, okay? And so just keep in mind, everything has a cost. So doesn't mean you can't have jokes, but that joke had a, has to really, you know, deeply involve the nature of the content you want to be learning because you know, if it's different attention, then that's, that hurts. Um, okay, the, the second part has to do with long-term memory, I mean, and retention. Obviously, we want our students to, you know, we teach them and we, we expect them to remember that for 30 or 40 years, or at least a few weeks. Um, and so, they know a lot about retention, and it turns out that the problem really isn't getting stuff into long-term memory. The problem is recalling it back out when you need it, okay? And the, 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 where that comes into important in teaching is that as you learn new, as the brain learns new stuff, that interferes with its recall of the previous stuff, okay? Because it's building up new neuron connections that get in the way and so on. And so if you think about this sort of standard process of, that happens in courses, you, you know, cover chapter one material and the students do problems on that and maybe have a test and they've mastered chapter one, great, and then you go on to, to chapter two and chapter three and so on. But in fact, by going through chapter two and three, that have now reduce the, their ability to correctly recall the material from chapter one. Um, 
But fortunately, once you know about this, it turns out it's pretty easy to fix. That this, this interference and recall, if the brain just um, occasionally goes back and has to remember that chapter one material as new stuff is coming in, it cleans up all of those interfering connections and so it, it suppresses the uh, interference. So for any physicists in the, in, the, in the audience, it's a really good analogy to doing a quantum measurement so you get a clean quantum state. But for those of you not in the not physicists, just take my word for it. Thinking about chapter one while learning chapter three is really helpful, okay? Um, okay, so then the other thing I wanna talk about is what's the nature of how to think about what the disciplinary expertise should go in here. And I talk about that just because my own group has been doing a bunch of research lately that's very relevant to this and pretty interesting <laughs> results. We're, we're looking at, at expert problem solving. And so um, in that we've been looking across science, engineering, and some medical fields, um, and we're identifying the decisions that experts make in those fields as they're solving authentic problems uh, you know, in, in their discipline. Um, and so the first step of this is identifying the decisions, and then we're working to use those decisions to create better assessments of how well students are learning to think like experts with the ultimate goal of improving how, how that's taught as well. So uh, what we've done, and this is quite recent work, um, is interview a whole bunch of experts across this range of disciplines. We're up to almost 60 now. Um, interview them in which they go through in detail the process of solving some you know, significant problem that they've done in, you know, fairly recently, okay? Uh, and then we code the decisions, all the decisions that they made in going through that problem-solving process. And skipping details, this turns out you need a team with a expertise across a bunch of different areas. Fortunately, I've been able to assemble that. And what we found is really quite surprising is that across all these fields, they all make the same set of decisions. And for every problem, they make the same set of decisions. And so um, there are 31 of them <laughs> that, you know, a mechanical engineer, a physicist, a biologist, a doctor doing diagnostics, they make 30, the same 31 decisions in that problem-solving process. Now, emphasize the decisions are the same. The, how the decisions are made, the decision, you know, what they come to as decisions, those, those are very different, very discipline-specific, you know, use all kinds of knowledge and can be quite individual, but it's been remarkable to emerge that the, the decisions themselves are the same. And I sort of lumped them into roughly uh, categories here, they delineate the goals of the problem, how to frame the problem, deciding, you know, uh, they, they decide how it relates to other problems they know about and potential solutions, uh, deciding how to decompose the problem, what simplifications or approximations they can make, priorities, and so on. So, you know, if you're in any of these fields, you solve problems, you'll look at this and say, oh yeah, I do that. But it's just fascinating to realize 
they're all doing that, okay? And in terms of deciding what information and then how to correctly interpret and analyze it, decide about the reliability. So how does, what does this have to do with what I was just talking about teaching? Well, um, it means that if you want the students to learn to think about and solve problems like an expert in the discipline, you need to have them practice making these decisions. And so, for example, you know, if you think about any area of science and engineering, you think about, you know, you should give students the problem, the decisions when, you know, and, and given the, the question or problem, deciding, you know, what concepts are relevant to that problem, deciding what information is relevant to solving it and what's irrelevant. Um, I already mentioned deciding how to decompose it, deciding what approximations are appropriate, um, and you know, deciding on and criteria for potential solution methods. And then a, you, know, you can put in as many others you want for any particular problem. But one that's really critical, shows up as very important for everyone, is at the end deciding, um, you know, once you get a conclusion, each discipline has criteria, deciding that meets the disciplinary criteria for you know, that conclusion making sense or the answer is reasonable, okay? So, um, you know, while these are the, uh, what I would argue is you should have these as a fundamental part of what the problem students are practicing solving, um, if you actually think about those, the typical science and engineering problem explicitly removes these all of these particular things because they're too fuzzy. They, you know, people want to give nice, clean, simple model systems, you know, where everything is, uh, all of these things are obvious. In doing that, you're basically completely removing the, stu the students from this essential practice of problem solving. Now, the I will say uh, the other thing we in our work we've now started having these decision-based assessments where once you realize, yeah, this is a key decision needed for this subject, you can, it's really easy to map it onto simple scenarios, ask the students what their decision is and why, and it ve it's very, very clear when they are like, or more often completely not unlike experts in the field. And we see, yeah, most of the time these are, you know, highly successful graduating Stanford students, medical students, and they're terrible at, at using this knowledge to make decisions, which is really what you, you know, want from education. Um, okay, so, what am I doing time-wise? Okay, yeah, so, um, let me say a little more, a little then uh, quickly about some of the research on implementation. Um, and some things that have been shown to be important there. Um, first, it's, um, and, and I, I'm picking out things where I, I've seen faculty hear about these techniques and go to use them in their courses, but kind of miss important elements. And so this is, this is one of them. They, um, you know, in the design test, it's really critical to have clear deliverables, something the student actually has to do, basically, to get them deeply engaged and to see what they're doing. Um, and, um, and then the, the, the second aspect of the uh, implementation is 
it turns out almost all of these things involve working in small groups. That's just because it's an easy thing to do and there's such clear gains from doing that. But I think uh, it's important to understand actually what, what really contributes to those gains so that you're actually implementing it effectively. So uh, the, the first that most everybody sort of recognizes right away uh, is that, okay, if they've you know, got three, four students, they can get feedback from their peers or some missing piece of knowledge that the more you know, better prepared student can tell the less prepared. And so they can get sort of more immediate feedback. They can avoid spending a lot of time being stuck. And so that part's kind of obvious. But there's actually a really more important part that's not obvious and well-known by a lot of people, but very well studied by the cognitive <laughs> psychologists. And that is that when, when somebody is going to explain something to somebody else, even just preparing to explain it to someone else, um, it actually triggers a different cognitive process in their brain. And the brain sort of has special wiring, if you like, for this kind of social uh, interaction. And so it's, it's really fascinating that people do these experiments uh, where they'll have these, you know, two people study something and then, uh, or let's take one person, they'll study it and then they'll uh, either be given a case where they study it some more or they spend that same time uh, actually preparing it to teach to somebody else and then they test them on the material. And just the practice of, just the process of preparing to teach it, they learn more. You know, you test them on it and they score higher, okay? So, so there's, there's really a basic learning process just from the fact that you're having them, putting them together to interact. And then finally, they also un overlooked a lot of times is this is incredibly useful for a teacher to have students bring together just so you can listen in on those conversations. You can get so much better idea where their brains are and then that makes you a much more effective teacher. You can be much more effective feedback. And so, uh, so that's kind of the, the, the group learning benefits to, to take in mind. So, uh, you know, I'll start wrapping up here. I think the conclusion is basically that you know, we have this substantial body of research now, which is really established, you know, teaching expertise. What practices are fundamentally uh, more effective? And we understand what they are and why. Um, and when they're learned, you know, by the instructors, instruction staff and applied, students learn more and what we've seen in doing these large-scale experiments, I'll talk about it again, uh, both students prefer, it varies in conditions how much, uh, but the faculty really prefer it once they learn how to do it there. And so, you know, I'd argue this has the potential to really dramatically improve uh, post-secondary education, but it raises the question of how to make this the norm, what we, you know, basically the medieval model of universities we have now to something re modern research-based. And so um, th this, I'll just finish up saying a little bit about this big experiment I did, kind of look, trying to figure that out. And so uh, this was the, the science education initiative 
which was targeting large-scale institutional change uh, in teaching and uh, at two big public research universities. The details are all in the book I ended up writing here. Uh, but you know, it was successful to the extent it, it did change um, it did change some entire departments, or at least you know, at least 90% of the faculty dramatically changed how they teach. And it, between these institutions, that was several hundred faculty members in in the sciences and most of the uh, most of the credit hours they they teach. And it, we also were able to show that once uh, faculty learned how to do this effectively, they overwhelmingly preferred it and continued to do it even when there was no, no incentive or support to do so. Um, and as a note that every administrator cares about, uh, it doesn't, it didn't, you know, we showed it doesn't cost any more, you know, in terms of the instructional costs, they're, they're just the same. Um, but the key element really has to do with the, the, the finding that the formal evaluation incentive system really penalizes uh, faculty for doing this. That the time they take away to learn to teach more effectively comes at a, co a small cost to research productivity. That's on the only thing the evaluation system uh, basically measures and rewards. And so it's really, to, to move this thing to large scale, it's really uh, essential that universities find a way to, to really better measure teaching expertise and reward it, okay? And so I believe that the fundamental problem at this point is a better way to evaluate teaching. Um, and, it's, and it has to be a way that captures the use of these best practices in teaching that research shows lead to better outcomes. Um, and so, uh, just say, you know, one last point about this is that across the whole world, the, the student, the teaching evaluation is dominated by student course of instructor evaluations. You know, I can go through a lot of research on that, but the bottom line is they do not reflect the amount of learning and they don't reflect the amount of uh, the use of the more of most effective teaching practices, and they do they are subject to to lots of biases, in particular in the you know in fields like chemistry and physics that are male dominated. There's a strong bias, gender bias against female instructors. So, you know, people got to do. It's just okay. Time to do something better, uh, and I. You know, I've written various articles, so you can uh, learn about this, but I'll just finish here with uh, talking about here's the, uh, you know, if you want to learn more about this, here's sort of my list of favorite references, some books on the, the basic underlying ideas, and then at this website, we have a lot of resources for faculty where it's sort of one and two page guides. If you want to implement some specific thing, this gives you the, the details of how to do it. So um, now, now there's going to be time for questions, but I'm going to start by asking the first question. Uh, going to do that afterwards? No, I'm going to ask this okay. question first, okay. Because I know that I'm going to get this question, or at least a lot of people are thinking about it, as always has. So before we have the follow-up, uh, you know, 
there are people out there who are thinking, you know, but traditional lectures can't be bad as I claim because they all, um, you know, we, we faculty learned that way and look how great we turned out, okay? <laughs> so my response to that is that is exactly the same argument <laughs> that made bloodletting the medical treatment of choice for literally 2,000 years. And the whole point is to look at this scientifically, you really have to make controlled comparisons. That's what medicine figured out 200 years ago. That's what we're figuring out in education now. And so, you know, for any of you who feel this way, I'll just point out, you know, if you had an identical twin that went through the same way, but was taught in the ways I'm talking about, they'd probably be more successful than you are now. So, okay, thank you. Uh, my background is as an economist, and I was just thinking, just as we finishing up there, it was just going through my head. When I started lecturing, no one actually taught me how to teach. It was just assumed, I, you know, got my education, now I would go and teach. Um, and I'm thinking in economics, um, there's been lots of discussions recently following, you know, what's perceived to be a crisis in economics around what we should teach in economics, but very little debate on how we teach it. Um, we, we have, you know, the development of uh, the new core framework in economics. Um, but again, you know, not much about how we teach it. There is some work. There are some uh, academics out there in economics who teach using experiments and games. Um, but this is very much at the local level, and it's not the norm. I wanted to talk a bit about sort of um, how we assess universities in the UK. Now, my own experience uh, it has mainly been in the past as Carl has says, on the assessment of uh, research quality via the uh, research uh, uh, excellence framework. Uh, in England now, we have the teaching excellent and student outcome framework. Now, I know there are some qualms about how you know, we, we assess universities on that, which is not my point uh, today. Um, but I think it, 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 it's becoming clear that we do take more seriously uh, the issue of uh, the quality of teaching and student experience in uh, English higher education uh, institutions. Uh, and of course, there's an issue with universities being uh, autonomous bodies, you know, and, and I, I have to say that I don't have a huge amount of clarity on how uh, science and technology courses are taught in universities, but, but it is something we need to look at. Um, we do, again, we do uh, try and link STEM course content, we ask universities to do that, through linking to industry with an aim of producing graduates who are skilled and can fill the rapidly changing needs of uh, industry. But again, we don't say much on how they should do that. Now, the Teaching Excellence Framework in of itself is, broad, is quite broad and it focuses on uh, an assessment of quality at uh, institution level. Uh, and the Secretary of State has recently asked the Office for Students to actually start working on subject level TEF uh, teaching evaluations. Um, to do this at a subject level will require a framework that relies on a deep understanding of good practice in the teaching of all different subjects. Uh, and, and what we would like to see is how, uh, through assessments of quality of uh, teaching of different subjects, how this will then help students make choices about where to study uh, a particular subject. So I'm, I'm very interested in Professor Wyman's thoughts on what we, or rather the Office of, uh, for Students, should be doing in terms of assessing teaching quality at a subject level 
uh, and, and uh, uh, in providing information to students so that they can make informed choices. Um, the other thing I was... Ooh, I've got a flashing light here. Okay, the other thing I was particularly interested in is something Professor Warren picked up at the end. Uh, we're quite worried in... Uh, so one of our concerns at the DfE is, is the lack of diversity in STEM subjects and particularly the lack of women uh, being attracted into STEM subjects. Uh, and I'm quite interested again on Professor Wyman's views on actually if we change how we teach not just STEM subjects but also economics where, where there's a gender problem as well. Um, if, that, if, if we change how we teach can that increase the diversity of students who come in and take these subjects? I do have one very narrow question. I was really interested in the stuff you talk about, short-term learning constraints, and was just thinking, does that then have an implication for how we structure the day at university? Because I was thinking, well, if I go from lecture to lecture, and it's, you know, you've got your five to seven things I can learn short-term, does that have implications for um, how, we, how, how we structure the university day? Okay, I'll stop there, because um, I'm running out of time, but uh, I can go on forever. Thank you. Thank you for a fascinating talk. Um, so my background is from the centre, one of my roles is as co-director of the Centre for Engineering Education, a discipline-based engineering education centre. Um, and so I was very pleased to hear the call for training staff within the disciplines and taking those that uh, have a, a particular research focus and looking at how we train them. So um, no, particularly delighted because just this year we're taking our second cohort into an MSc in Engineering and Education, joint between the Engineering Faculty and the Institute of Education, to try and do just that, which I think really ties into the comment you made at the end of how then we reward the staff that are involved in those sorts of um, activities and ensure that development of education is as prized as long, alongside research. Um, there are a few things that really struck me about your talk, particularly the idea of engineering and science being applicable across fields just beyond those. Um, I was always struck by a comment, I think, by one of your colleagues, Larry Leifer from Stanford, about engineering being the new liberal arts for the 21st century. Something that these are, these are skills that for the next generation of industry, everyone is going to need scientific and engineering skills, whether it's in big data or AI, that are going to actually permeate across all walks of life in the future. And we need to prepare our students in a very rigorous way for, to be able to do that. Um, having led a curriculum reform within UCL, also struck by the, the scientific approach to evaluation. I think far too often we see great ideas put out there, but with very little evaluation that they be effective, beyond the personal opinion that my students liked it and they seemed to get more out of it. So to actually see a talk full of, of data that really resonates with faculty as to how that will improve the education of their students, I think is very important to convince faculty to invest that time to develop their, um, develop their applications. I think also particularly pertinent is the idea that we see a lot in, in, in literature about very novel me measures of teaching. I've been involved in problem-based learning, project-based learning, things that really change the classroom setting very fundamentally. So to see options, see techniques that take that classroom setting, can be applied to large classes, and to change the outcome significantly is, I think, something that we, we need to look across the gamut. I personally am a big fan of problem-based learning and think there's a role for it within many of our curriculum, but actually to see that the, the classroom setting can be fundamentally changed, can improve student outcomes, I think is something that is a message we should perpetuate across much more of the, the, the faculty that we work with. Um, 
Actually, to your question, when I was a young and naive lecturer, I had the, the pleasure of spending some time with uh, Professor Lewis Elton, who was part of, part of UCL back then, the physicist, then educationalist. And I asked a similar question about professors. Um, and and well, surely it can't be that bad. And he commented to me, but you must remember, normal students don't become academics. <laughs> and I think that's very important for us to remember that we have this range of students in front of us. So um, I guess my final comment is to thank you for a fascinating talk. And I think I should be off to rewrite all my jokes for this year's lectures <laughs> to make sure they're in line with the curriculum. Thank you very much. Great. Well, now the floor is open to you and uh, your questions. Okay, so um, just some ground rules on the questions. Uh, to avoid the, the slowing down of passing microphones all around, I've said that we just people will just shout out their questions. I will repeat them so that everybody can hear them. Uh, and so if I forget to repeat your question, <laughs> yell at me. But also, it means that you're going to have to talk loudly just so that I can hear them. Okay? So, yes. No, I, I, actually have, I actually spend a lot of time talking with young education researchers about the ethical issues now, and it's, it's, it is quite complicated because on the one hand, um, in, sorry, <laughs> the question was, how ethical, <laughs> you know, the question about the ethics uh, in, in research education of doing two treatments when you know one of them is less effective. So, yeah, and so that really has become, you know, in the early days it was okay because we didn't have so much evidence that the traditional lecture approach was bad. Okay, so it was fine to keep comparing. Now, clearly, I, as a reader, cannot set up an experiment where I have where if I have control of how it's taught, where one of them is teaching one way, and then I want to do the comparison. It's awkward, though, because it's kind of like dealing with doctors where half the, you know, where 90% of the doctors are still using bloodletting, you know, and I'd like to show, gee, this is a lot better than what you're doing, but at the same time, I know what they're doing is wrong. So it, but, um, so the, but the, the quick answer to that is, yeah, this is a question that researchers do have to pay attention to and, and are now. And, you know, like in the, the study that I showed where that I had input on of those two lectures, uh, you know, the one lecture versus the other, that was only possible because we had someone who was very sure he, he was an effective teacher and he was also pretty darn competitive. And so, you know, he was going to lecture no matter what. We had no control over that, and so we took advantage of that to, to make that particular comparison. If I have control of it, no, I, I really can't uh, subject students to something I know is ineffective. And so we have to, you know, what we're then thinking about is, okay, we have 
one active learning classroom, but we're still figuring out better ways to design and structure problems and so we can take standard, accepted, good practice and we then compare it with something else. But yeah, but if I'm in, yeah, it's not ethical when you're in control of things to, to have students do something, even though it's, you know, lots of people are doing that, are still teaching that way. You, you can't ethically defend that. Yes? Throughout your presentation, uh, it almost became evident that uh, you assumed that everybody could actually be an effective teacher if properly trained. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if that's what you thought. Uh, so the question is, he, he says uh, he's assuming, or I was felt I was assuming everybody could be an effective teacher um, if properly trained, and the answer is um, yes. I mean, we at this point we have well enough defined, th you know, principles and practices that uh, that you know you follow these things, you'll be an effective teacher. Now we do know there's variations in how quickly, and and that's actually in the in the big UBC where I got hundreds of comparisons, it's clear that there's a variation in how quickly people, you know, they're <laughs> become effective and their ultimate level of effectiveness. And that's largely, uh, frankly, that seems to be largely governed by how well they, or how good a job they can do at understanding student thinking, of sort of you know putting them there, themselves in the, the student's mind, and so some people are not very good at that, and so you know maybe they're well they give lousy lectures also, so you know they still be much more effective than what they are doing uh, you know doing standard lectures following these these practices, you know even the ones who are least effective. It's just you know. I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way, anybody who's competent enough to get a PhD in STEM can do most of these things moderately effectively. Yeah. <laughs> what have you found is the most challenging in the training, in the retraining of So his question is, what have we found is the most challenging in the training of faculty? Um, you know, it's going to seem funny, but it's establishing learning goals for the course. And by that, what we mean is learning goals or sometimes you call objectives, where we, we to, to really teach these things effectively, you know, you have to, as an instructor, you have to lay out in very operational terms details about what you really want the students to be able to do at the completion of the course. And so, you know, a good set of learning goals, it might have 50 different specific things on it. And what we found is that, and I'm not entirely sure why, I have speculations, but that's just a very difficult thing for most, you know, when I went into the, the, this change, and it was okay, the first thing you want faculty to do is sit down and make a clear list of learning goals, and then those will guide the instruction, the design of you know, the activities, the assessment, and so on. And faculty just had a terrible time doing that, uh, or just, it was just very difficult. And in fact, what we found is you really, most of the time they'd sort of have some tentative difficult thing, they'd introduce these, these active learning 
practices where then they would be connecting up with students much better and they'd have a much better idea of what students were thinking and struggling with, then, in the, then they could iterate better in terms of establishing those goals, then they could make everything work better. But that, it's not at all what I would have expected would have been the most difficult, but that's, you know, what it was. Uh, yes. I would be very grateful to hear your thoughts on the gender issue that was raised before, but also, um, what about uh, variation in um, prior attainment and subsequent attainment? You know, did those who came in with lower prior attainment okay. catch up, or was the still the same variation okay. at the end? So, so these are two areas of of current research by a number of people, but in in particular my own research group, uh, and so. Um, in terms of the gender issue, we're looking, we and others are looking at this more broadly. Uh, you know, I, I showed how we moved the distribution up. Now the question is, how do you pile it all up at the end, right? And so, um, and, and so there's some indications that not just gender, but other students, you know, other students and other groups who were, who were, you know, performing, traditionally performing worse, that these methods help, you know, help them improve. It's a mixed, you know, I, I won't say we have great understanding of it and we can give you things that are gonna make a big difference yet. We see some indications. It's closely related to the second one though, which is the, the preparation issue. And, and I'll refer you to a paper which has is, is just been published like three weeks ago um, in Physical Review, Physics Education Research. And what we did was we looked at, and we did this, end up looking at three rather different institutions and saw the same thing, which is really dramatic, uh, which is really surprising. We looked at performance in, in Physics 1, basically, which is kind of standard every place. Um, and we tried to find out what was a predictor of of you know final exam performance, uh, and and we started out with the same thing that that a lot basically every institution I know that's looked at it sees that in that class uh, women underrepresented minorities and first generation college students perform typically at the level of a uh, you know a quarter to a half a standard deviation lower than the average, okay? And so we set out to find out, okay, what are all the factors that go into this? We, what The quick answer was, in the, uh, when we did a bunch of statistical modeling, uh, prior preparation was everything, okay? And with two rather crude measures of prior preparation, which was the the SAT math score, which is in the US a national kind of math test. Um, uh, the SAT math score and a, and a, and a simple crude pre-test of physics background knowledge that we gave the students the first day, um, those basically accounted uh, for about 30, 30 to 35% of the variation in final uh, performance in the class, okay? Um, and once you included those, there weren't any other variables that 
that had predictive value. So women, it didn't matter. Underrepresented minorities, didn't matter. First generation Caucasians, those, all, those were simply secondary indications of who was less prepared in physics uh, you know, from, from secondary school. And so we saw it in Stanford. We saw in Colorado, which is a University of Colorado, which you know, Stanford admits 0.1% or something of applicants. And the, you, know, you have to be in the top 1% of test or 10th of a percent in test scores. Colorado admits two-thirds of all its applicants, totally different population, and yet the exact same model was true, 34% of the variance. And so um, what we've concluded from that is that there's, and Cornell was also, we, we've got data in there, um, what we concluded is that there must be something fundamental in the way instructors are teaching which has them biased to essentially teaching to the top third of the incoming preparation and therefore really stacking the deck against these ones who come in underprepared. And in the US, we can trace these underpreparation really is almost entirely economic. I mean, the, you come from the poor, you know, correlates very strongly with coming from the poor school, poor in the sense of economically poor school districts. So, so, yeah, so we think it's all about preparation and some indication the teaching methods help some, but not as much as we'd like. And that's, that's really an ongoing research project right now is to figure out how much is possible to change and how, how it, much it depends on teaching methods. Yes. Yeah. So how do we manage to do that? Also, they will be more than scientists. They will okay. be more than engineers. Uh, 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 they will uh, be human beings. Right. Okay. How okay. Do we, uh, yeah. So so my my point w the is what? The oh, well, there wasn't really a question. <laughs> His comment is on. Do <laughs> you want to repeat it? <laughs> it's basically teaching for the future. Yeah, teaching to the okay, teaching to the future. What what? How does this relate to that? Um, so, what what I would argue is that you know any particular subject material, especially in engineering content, it's going to be obsolete very soon. So, what can we pass on to these students that's going to be of value? And I would argue it's the same thing whether they're going to be a, an an engineer or they're just going to be a, a good citizen. And that's not the, the topic so much as the reasoning processes, and I put it in very specific terms, the decision-making processes used by experts in that subject. And that those are the, the, you know, that's the core of our human knowledge and that, that goes well beyond any particular content. And so it's applicable in terms of being 
good citizens, when you have to make decisions about you know, what society should do in terms of energy choices or you know, genetically modified foods, it's those kind of ways of thinking will guide you there. Also in the same way, being an engineer in the, you know, I'm gonna be very, well, I'll be more than surprised. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that, you know, in 50 years, the engineers will be doing completely different kinds of things, but they'll be using very much the same decision processes that they are now that, you know, made engineering what it is uh, to do that. So I think that we, you know, the things I'm talking about here really is teaching the students for the future. Uh, let's see. Yes. So um, earlier on in the, the talk we, we heard, um, there's a teaching excellence framework is going on in the UK, yeah. uh, which is measuring quality of education. Do you have any insights on how to measure that so that students can choose a degree course on the basis of that quality? Yeah. So what I, I suspect my my approach is quite different from that they're using here. But what I argue is, is the way to measure quality is to completely characterize all the teaching practices used in a course. So that involves not just what happens in the course, but what kind of exams and what kind of supporting material, et cetera. And, and look at then, and, and so we developed an instrument to do that in a rapid, efficient way called the Teaching Practices Inventory. And it's got 62 items, but believe it or not, people can fill it out in five to 10 minutes. A lot of work went into that. Um, at the end of that, you have a very thorough, well-informed uh, you know, characterization of the practices used that that instructor used in teaching that course. And we then can have a rubric, a scoring rubric that goes through it and says, okay, of these, you now know all the things they did, which of these is their research showing leads to better learning, okay? And so, you know, then you have an effective teaching practices score, and, you know, hopefully soon, universities will start recognizing that teaching practices really do matter. They'll have that data available, and then students will be able to look and see, gee, you know, University College London, they, they're teaching, they're using these methods at, at this level of frequency, whereas Imperial, they're, you know, somewhere else. So I'm gonna, you know, so that's what I would argue. Uh, I mean, so we have the, the methods for doing that existing and people in the US, you know, I've been talking about this, but that's a very slow process to get that kind of change adopted. Yes. So his, his question is a very good one, which is, do we need to change the assessments and the exams that we use? And I would say that depends on the assess, you know, what is happening in those assessments and exams. When you're, if you're assessing learning by, by, I wouldn't want to point to any fingers here, I'll just say in the, 
broadly speaking, in the U.S., the students are locked in a room, given access to no other resources, and told to solve a bunch of stuff, which involves memorizing a whole bunch of things which any reasonable functioning scientist or engineer would quickly just look up. Okay, that's a totally, in a, you know, it's, that assessment is completely inauthentic. It has no connection with actual perform, you know, real performance of their, you know, of the, of, of the job. And so it's really meaningless. And so if you want students to learn to really think like experts, you should assess them by giving them tasks that have them think like experts, giving them you know, the same kind of opportunities. You know, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to say, no, you can't run and ask somebody else, which is what any, you know, real people, real experts do most of the time, but they should, you know, access the same kind of information, have very much the uh, authentic tasks, tasks which involve having to make those same kind of decisions that we listed there. That'll be a much better, much more meaningful assessment. Now, Having said that, um, if you go and look you know, at all these interventions and what they do, how much difference they make on the standard assessments, the, the more the assessments are kind of about memorized information and procedures, which is the vast majority, frankly, they don't show any difference. And that's, you wouldn't expect that, because that, that's what we're teaching. To the extent they do involve actually more reasoning and, and thinking, then you see bigger and bigger differences in the kind of assessments my group is now working on where it's really based very much on, on very explicit decisions and putting realistic scenarios. There we see giant differences. You know, we see these Stanford medical students who are, you know, past millions of exams with spectacular scores that are basically memorization and they don't know how to diagnose a patient at all. They, they have all this knowledge and they simply don't know how to organize and make decisions with it and that's really easy to assess. You just ask them to do it and, and why and it shows up. But, but the, the bottom line to your point is yeah, we need assessments which are really in some sense more valid measures of the real learning we care about ultimately. We found in changing, in working with faculty to change their teaching, that happened very quickly and immediately. As soon as they really started thinking about what they wanted to learn, they would change their exams pretty dramatically uh, actually to be, uh, to capture that better. Way in back. But you have to talk really loud. So uh, the question is, what are other parts of the body, but also other parts, well, you know, affective and emotion, that's still other aspects of the brain. So other, uh, other aspects beyond cognitive and other parts of the body. So first, I'll say with respect to other parts of the body, you know, I don't know of any, everything we look at happens in the brain. And I'll just, you know, so that's, I'll leave it at that. In terms of these other aspects of the kind of emotional or, or 
affective, those come in in a very important way, mostly through the motivational aspects that, you know, if, if uh, that, and, and therefore it's absolutely critical they be addressed and, and they're part of what you have to think about in the teaching, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so, so they, they are things that, that matter just because, in, in a large sense, they govern how people do other things, okay? Oh, I just think one more question and we're, we're, we're up to time. Okay. Uh, how about we take two? Those two were both very eager, uh, so, <laughs> yes. So his question is, he's referring to a study coming out of the Military Academy U.S. sort of giving different results. I, I'm not sure exactly which study you're talking about. I will say I've looked at a number of, of Military Academy studies, and they give, I mean, and sometimes they agree with this stuff. Sometimes they give quite conflicting results. And uh, But having looked at this stuff in detail, the life of a military cadet is profoundly different from a university student. And so they have a bunch of factors that come in that are really different. And so I've learned to be very tentative about interpreting and, 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 and taking a broader view of any of the things that come out of, of those situations, just because there's, there's a whole lot of other factors going on in their life that uh, are, are quite different. Okay, last question. Yeah, so one, one barrier to learning is that students sometimes do not prepare or do not attend the sessions. So yeah. I'm wondering whether you find uh, some correlations between attendance and research-based learning, or whether you have some recommendations on how to increase attendance and increase yeah. preparation. So, so, so his question is worrying about attendance and, and how that's related to this. So the first thing is this research dramatically increases attendance, okay? And that's universal. Um, and I mean, in fact, that was the first thing that the Stanford faculty were so, so struck by is, gee, you know, attendance was 50 to 60%. Now, student, all the students are all coming to class all the time, okay? And so, uh, I mean, and I think that that's, to, I mean, partly they're supposed to be producing something, they get marked on it, but the main thing you hear is just, that's just a much more effective use of their time. They're actually learning something, and so it's worth investing that time. Um, you, you mentioned also about the preparation, having them prepare for class. That's something we studied at UBC, and you know, if you go look at the references there, we how to get students to to prepare ahead of time, and basically we have a set of things that say, you do this, and they, they'll prepare ahead of time, okay? And, you know, it's now been tested and repeated over and over again. Uh, it's just, and it's, you know, I'll, I'll just, this will give me an excuse to make a final comment here, is that all of our work says students are actually incredibly rational. And so if they're not doing what you want, it's because you don't understand 
why they're making the decisions they are. And so things like preparing and evidence, we just study them and we do in detailed interviews with them and we find out and we find, oh, okay, so we need to do this and then that convinces them. And that's worked over and over again. So uh, on, on that, you know, on that note, I'll say, you know, you have to just think of your students not how also how to get more effective learning, but also in terms of if they're not doing what you want, you need to understand their motivation, decisions better, because it's, you may not agree with it, but it's almost always a sensible, rational decision based on the environment they're in. And if, and if you adjust that environment properly, they'll end up doing uh, really exactly what you think is best for them. Okay? Thank you. Well. I, I, I just wanted to thank you, Carl, for a really incredibly thought-provoking and stimulating talk. It really was, was, was incredibly interesting. And focusing on the transformational nature of education, for me, is what it's all about. Thank you very much indeed. And can I thank my, the two other speakers, um, Mr. Rahman and uh, Professor Mitchell. I'm happy to say there's drinks outside, um, so enjoy a glass of wine. And thank you, all of you, three of you, thank you. <laughs>